Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me this week is our news editor, Eric Van Allen. Hey, how's it going? And our guide's editor, staff writer now, actually, uh, here in Cryer. Welcome. Caught you out. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about it, but you are in a new position here, and congratulations. Yeah, I actually am now. Even though I'm still working <laughs> on guides, but yeah, I'll take it. But yeah, you're taking a greater role in editorial. And the reason that I... Yes, you are. And I, the reason I have you two on the show is that we are going to be doing a roundtable spoiler discussion about Death Stranding, a game that is now out and we can talk about fully. Um, Death Stranding, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say is a RPG in the most traditional sense of the world, but I think there's an overlap, a lot, a lot of overlap between our audience, perhaps, and people who would be playing and be interested in Death Stranding. And if you if you want to put on the, is it an RPG, not an RPG, you do spend a lot of time in inventory management, an RPG staple, so. <laughs> That's one way of looking at Also, I want to talk about Death Stranding. What can I do? It's my own <laughs> podcast. The Blood God is broadly positive on uh, on Death Stranding, so, I mean, I got to adhere to the Blood God, but. Uh, you are the Blood God. I, well, oh. <laughs> Why? Yeah, it was cat all along. <laughs> mean old Miss Cat was the blood god all along. All right, before we get started, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. If you're enjoying the podcast, do me a favor and leave us a review on your chosen platform. It helps increase our visibility, and it also makes us feel good because we put a lot of time into this show, and we always like a little bit of, I don't know, recognition. We also have a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday. That's Nadia. Uh, get some thoughts from the Blood God and also see a roundup of all of the RPG news. You can go and subscribe to that on the site. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Hiran is on Twitter at Hiran Cryer. And Eric is on Twitter at Simusi, S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I. Okay. Before we get started, uh, let's just very quickly talk about an article that you did on the site, uh, Eric, and it was about Mass Effect. It was on the occasion of N7 Day, a day that we celebrate for some reason, and you were basically arguing in favor of the idea that, well, getting a Mass Effect remaster is about maybe a little more than just being able to play the games again, you know, just enjoying these classic, classic games. Right. It's... I, I mean, we talk a lot about remasters and we always have that feeling of, oh, you know, I just want to play those games again. I want to play them again. You know, oh, they're so good. And they are really, really good. But there's something deeper about the Mass Effect series. Like, it represents an era of development, of game design, of RPG making that has really fallen by the wayside this console generation. You don't see those types of games anymore. I think games like Greedfall are actually a direct response to, like, the absence of them and so having uh, assassin's creed odyssey picked up the mantle i i wouldn't even put assassin's creed odyssey in that but you're I, saying I think odyssey that takes the, more from andromeda saying, or things like that you're saying there's open world kind of uh design is fairly common but maybe not the more uh linear straightforward hub and spokes design of say a game like mass effect 
Well, it's linear and the idea that your choices are carrying forward, not just within the game, but within a larger series. The idea of having these companions that you kind of build up over time. We've seen social links and things like that, but I still don't think any of them have hit the same cadence or level of attachment that a lot of Mass Effect characters have, especially because of the carryover between games. I love Persona a lot. You know, I I like those games a lot, but those characters stay contained to their individual games it's not like you're playing multiple personas multiple fire emblems that are carrying these social links across not just a single story but an entire series and you just you don't see that kind of development anymore because they'd kind of rather make that a living game you know it that's kind of what the design model is nowadays and the idea of having this discrete like you said it's it's not open world it's not evolving it's here is a story you're gonna play it from start to finish those things will matter. They'll carry forward to the next one, which will go from start to finish. And also Mass Effect is just... it. When I think of the 360 generation, you know, you think of games like Halo and Skyrim, but I think Mass Effect is one of the most like recognizable series from that generation. And the fact that it's so impossible to play those games right now, it's actually, speaking as someone who has had to replay all three of those games in the last year... Uh, it's actually a little bit harder to do that than you Did would you think it would Halo's be. Did you just say Halo's not easy to access, or Mass Effect's not easy to no, access? No, no, Mass Effect's not... No, well, Halo's I mean, just Halo's get an Xbox with backwards compatibility. Right, but then you either have to, to pick it up digitally, which I personally am always like, I'm wary of any digital access, especially when you consider that uh, Mass Effect does have songs in it that could easily fall prey to the most classic way of getting a game delisted, which is uh, licensed music. Uh, and if you don't have an Xbox, you know, if you don't have an Xbox 360 with the original copies of the game, or you don't have an Xbox One with backwards compat, then you have to go to PC. And PC Mass Effect has its own like weird host of issues that you have to kind of navigate. Like two is okay, three they finally started to kind of figure it out, but one is actually kind of super annoying to get running you have to like incorporate some mods and things like that which it's not vampire the masquerade bloodlines by any means but you do still have to spend some time getting to it and it's this idea that we're about to go into the ps5 the scarlet generation and we don't have that sort of nathan drake collection or master chief collection to like round this all up it's not just about being able to play those games again like i said it's about the prestige of these things and that hasn't been recognized by ea or by really anything around it yeah ea well they've not done a good job with bioware in general over the past 10 years i want to say though you gotta wonder if is the ball in bioware's court to go out and actually remaster these things there's a lot of questions about what the heck is going on with mass effect yeah, and they were teasing it all during, you know, N7 Day, the the Hallmark holiday of Mass Effect, and they were going like, oh, there's so many more stories left to tell, and there's things to do in the Mass Effect universe, but I, I've i been a Mass Effect fan for a long time, and I've gotten kind of used to every N7 Day, they come around, and they say some cryptic things, and then it nothing happens, and we do it all again next year, and uh, at this point, I think, you know, why not just look towards you know, a studio like Bluepoint or Panic Button or somebody who has already put in a lot of work in porting games already and just say like, okay, 
it, we don't need a lot from this. You know, I don't think these games need to necessarily be completely remade. I honestly think it's fine if you keep Mass Effect 1 the way it is, like clunky combat at all. Maybe make the cover system not be completely horrible. But I mm. think that just a mild upgrade, just a tune-up to get these things running on modern hardware makes a lot of sense. And then having it all in one location, because it has that continuity between games makes a lot of sense too like that from a marketing perspective from a bundle perspective that's a really appealing get the idea that you can go okay here's the shepherd collection and you get to play through all of commander shepherd's story we've got all the dlc incorporated you don't even need to use any web app or something like you need to with dragon age to keep your story moving between games that's an appealing pitch yeah eric i think that what do you think of the idea of Bluepoint remaking Mass Effect and incorporating something similar to the combat in Outer Worlds where you can kind of go into time dilation. So you can keep the stats aspect, but it's not quite as clunky. I don't I don't dislike the idea of time dilation. I, I just I don't know if the gameplay needs any like actual updates because you know Mass Effect 1 combat wasn't the best. Mass Effect 2 and 3 were really a different beast from it entirely. But I think it is also important to like remember what these games were because it really is kind of fun to go back to mass effect one and be like oh right this is what this series played like originally this was their first outing which was somewhere between a third person shooter and like a dragon age or a Baldur's gate like way more there's numbers and there are abilities and you're managing all your different team members at, at a much higher level than you were later on. And I think that's actually a little interesting to go back to. It might not translate forward well though, but I, I don't necessarily know if I'd want to wholly remove any of that stuff. But the best part about, about Mass about Effect like wasn't the combat. The best part about combat was the quests and the story and the characters. And theoretically by refining the combat without removing the depth uh, you could keep all of the best bits of Mass Effect while also refining the experience. Right, right. You know, maybe like make Mass that Effect a toggle. Today is a pretty hard sell to a lot of people. I would say. I see. I I don't feel that. That's not just me, like the Bioware mega fan talking. I think that the idea of having this sort of game that you can pick away at and go through and do different endings, do different romances. I mean, we're seeing Fire Emblem Three Houses is doing extremely well and i think that is also in the same vein as as mass effect this idea that you can play through this game you can go for different endings you can talk to all your different companions like yes there's also a fire emblem in there and that is there and that is good but in the same way mass effect yeah mass effect 2 and 3 has combat that is good but at the end of the day you're not playing it for that you're playing it for the story and the space opera of it all so See, I promised I was going to go this whole podcast without saying the words space opera, because I think that's like the weirdest way to describe Mass Effect, but I ended up doing it anyways. Um, I think Mass Effect still holds up today. I think it still is extremely good today. I think that's why you still see so much response to it. You see so many people excited for N7 Day and the the responses to all the posts from Bioware just ended up being like, where's where's the Switch collection? Come on, put it on my Switch give us the remaster, give us the trilogy collection. Like, it's not that hard. It's not, you know, I mean, making video games is hard, but 
it's people have been asking for this for years now at this point and we're getting to the point now where we're going to jump console generations and not see a mass effect remaster that's wild to me here and you've never played mass effect what's <laughs> taking so long no the only bioware game i've played is dragon age inquisition oh i mean dragon age inquisition's not that bad i mean dragon age inquisition is great what are you talking about yeah, it's all like, right. I absolutely, I absolutely loved my time with that game, even though I hadn't played like the two prior to it, um, which has almost tempted me. So I've got, let's see, I've got all four Mass Effect games and all three Dragon Age games on Xbox One, largely through back and pat, and I still need to find time to go back and play them all. <laughs> well, you can play uh, Mass Effect over the holiday. That could be your assignment. Yeah, actually, to be honest, I'd like to do that, because I played Andromeda. Um, yeah, actually, sorry, but Inquisition isn't even the only uh, Bioware game I played. I have played Andromeda, and to be honest, I quite liked it. Um, I liked what I played, I just couldn't get very far, because I didn't feel myself really attaching to any of the characters like I did in the same way as Inquisition. Um, like, there's not a Cassandra, uh, uh, there's not, like, a Cassandra equivalent for andromeda or anyone like really latch onto and get behind um so i think i put about 10 15 hours into andromeda like it, it was it was fine it was fine the original um, mass effect has the best characters as i was discussing with uh here or sorry with eric like okay mass effect 2 has an amazing cast don't get me wrong like there's some really great ones in there but mass effect 1 is still the king Okay, no, no. I've I've been don't worry. I've been working on my response to this because I knew you were going to pull this card on me. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is from somebody who has played all three of these games in the last year. Uh, Mass Effect One's characters are the best in the series. Do not get me wrong. I I fully agree on that great. front. However, moving on. However, Mass Effect One is not what makes those characters great. Those characters are not the characters that we all know and love by the end of Mass Effect One. They aren't. It's Garrus is not who Garrus Vicarian becomes over the series in the span of Mass Effect 1. He becomes like Garrus, the bro, the sniper, the the steadfast best friend of Shepard in Mass Effect 2. Mass Effect 1 Garrus sucks. He's he's real bad. He's just and a then, cop. Yeah. yeah. And then but Rex in Mass rules. Effect 2, you're Rex like, has all of his best moments in Mass Effect 1. Oh, see, I disagree. I mean, on okay, that too. yeah, I, I get it, but like Rex rules it in Mass Effect One. He he does rule, but I think these characters evolve so much over the course of the series that yes, Mass Effect One's characters, like that cast, is so good, but they become that way because of the way that Mass Effect evolves over time. Because it's true, Liara becomes if, a lot better in Mass Effect Two as well. Oh yeah, Lair the Shadow Broker is still so so good. Yeah, that's essential. By the way, Heron, if you play Mass Effect 2, you gotta play the DLC. Yeah, because Lair of the Shadow Broker is basically essential. That's kind of the same way I felt about the Trespasser DLC for Inquisition. Yeah, it's the same level of necessary. Like, both Mass Effect, like Mass Effect 1 had very throwaway DLC because it was still that time for 360, but around 2 was, like, when not only was Lair of the Shadow Broker coming out, but you had, like, Minerva's Den for Bioshock 2. There were a lot of really good DLCs coming out where people were going, hey, let's not you know just tack a combat arena on and say that's dlc but let's do more story driven like story essential dlc and bioware got really really good at that over time yeah because it trespasses like a proper epilogue and it also sets up um you know whatever's coming next in like 2022 or whatever (laughs) yeah oh god (laughs) someday (laughs) 
Yeah, I, you were talking, we see the original Dragon Age Origins just celebrated its 10th anniversary. And you wrote an article basically being like, hey, yeah, guys, guess what? The original Dragon Age Origins was better than you remember. And that was another example where the DLC really shined because uh, the, I forget the, I always forget the name of the song, uh, the character, but uh, insert character here's song is Leliana song. Like that's some of the best DLC RPG DLC you'll ever see. It really cemented Leliana as the best character in that game. Mm-hmm. You had that. You had Witch Hunt. I mean, you had Awakening, which was essentially, you know, a PC CRPG sized expansion pack for. It was a like a sequel. RPG. Yeah, it was huge. Amazing. So yeah, you should play Dragon Age Origins, and if you can, you should play the Mass Effect trilogy. And EA, if you're listening to this podcast, and I don't know why you are, because you don't seem to like RPGs anymore. Uh, I, what are you doing? Go and put freaking Mass Effect trilogy on the Nintendo Switch. Give Mass Effect to an entirely new generation, because there is a large, like Mass Effect 3 came out in 2013. That was 2012, seven years ago. That's a long time. That's an eight, that's an eternity in game time. We're about to be two generations removed from Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. Give us the classics. Yay. Give us the classics. Okay. All right. Let's move on and talk about the Death Stranding. Don't go away. In case you didn't realize, this is a spoiler-filled episode. We're talking about literally everything in the story of Death Stranding. So, I mean, you have been warned. Okay, Death Stranding, now out. I think we all finished it, like, a couple weeks ago. And my impression when we were finished with it was basically... We all kind of went came out going, Huh, I think I like it now? And... For me, like, for me, my, I I would say my feelings have grown fonder now that I've, like, have some remove from the game and have given some time to, like, think about it. I'm curious, do you guys like it more or less or about the same? What about you, Hiran? Um, I like it about the same, but that's only because it finished, like, on a real high for me. Um, I actually didn't really like it up until, like, the last hour, hour and a half. Um, and then that ending is kind of, like, really stuck with me. Um... I haven't really stopped thinking about it for days now. I've beaten it twice over. Um, and that ending still kind of gets me even when you know what's coming. Um, so I'd say I wasn't really that positive on it until the ending. And then that's what stuck with me. Like, that's what I've been thinking about when I think about Death Stranding. It's that ending. What about you, Eric? I think uh, it, it's kind of weird because I do feel I've grown fonder of it over time. But I also have come to to understand that the people who are going to like this game are going to like this game but there are also like a host of very justifiable reasons why you would not like this game and not want to play this game like i've had people ask me you know like should i play death stranding and usually i can tell just knowing the games that they've enjoyed whether they will enjoy it and find something good there or whether they should just absolutely stay away and it's i i I definitely enjoy it. Like, like Kieran said, it's the ending is kind of the saving grace for that game because it does really drag uh, getting up there. And then once you get to 
Uh, I, I'm trying to avoid like very direct story spoilers, just in case there is someone out there who is like listening and and maybe like you don't understand what the word spoilers mean. Uh, but uh, when you get to the part where you're about to go to Edge Not City, I mean Edge Not City as a whole is just like a very good way of them saying like, okay, you're in the end game. Like we're going to start throwing some stuff at you. That's just wild. It reminded me a lot of final fantasy 15 in some ways where once you get to a certain point in final fantasy 15, they go like, okay, you're on the rails. Now we're going to hurdle you down the tracks towards the end. And there's going to be a lot of really weird stuff between here and there. And much like final fantasy 15, uh, the ending is what ended up saving that game for me i know that's like a controversial take but that's a very <laughs> controversial take for final fantasy 15 i know right i'm i'm here to bring the hot takes <laughs> you thought this was about death stranding this is actually me saying <laughs> final fantasy 15's ending was good y'all <laughs> i thought final fantasy 15's ending was fine it was i mean it ultimately told a, a somewhat coherent coming of age story it was mostly a matter of um they cut out like certain characters just did not get enough face time and mm. they didn't do enough to earn that ending maybe so no, they definitely did not. whereas with death stranding bringing it back around uh <laughs> i felt like the characters in this game were so well realized i actually i did not expect to like the cast because in metal gear solid games in in the past you know a lot of characters kind of end up being like i don't want to say memes but they're like they're throwaways they're like hey here's the end he's this guy in a wheelchair that's super old and snipes at you and it turns into a really cool boss battle but you don't really you get like maybe a monologue or two from him it's not like this very developed character you you know you think about the games where you play a solid snake you're kind of by yourself a lot most of the characterization happens in codec calls and things like that whereas with death stranding you're spending a lot of time talking to people you're spending a lot of time getting to know people there's actually fewer codec calls and more just actual like sam in his room talking to someone through the chiral network and the idea that there are these this cast of characters ends up making it so much more earned the way that the game ends like hartman is great mama slash whatever mama becomes by the end of that game is great uh dead man guillermo del toro what's up that wasn't Please. guillermo del toro well it i mean just looked like him. i know it is the facade of guillermo del toro and the voice of someone else but even just the facade of guillermo del toro is is great i like truly enjoyed that um and we got to talk about the mvp the true mvp mads mickelson mm. just please be in more video games mads i need you in all the video games now after that performance it's incredible yeah i think hideo kojima's infatuation with hollywood stars actually paid off in this instance because i think the most compelling bits often were when you were going up in the elevator heading out on a run and the camera would be zooming in on bb and you assume that you're seeing BB's memories, but it's actually BB sharing your memories, which I think was a nice bit of cinematography by uh, Kojima. And then you see all the little bits with uh, with Mads. <laughs> His name is Cliff in the game, so we just call him Cliff. But um, and there are like little skits. Uh, the one that stands out in my mind is when he comes in 
with the uh, w- with the Santa hat pretending to be Santa. Yeah. <laughs> and that could have been so cringe, but it was actually cute because you can tell that he's playing it off as like, I'm a dork, I know it, but here I am being Santa with baby in a jar, right? And or the bits where he's like genuinely sad or like depressed or scared. And so you feel like you're getting to know this character of Cliff throughout the game. And then, of course, you see him on the battlefields and you're like, what the heck is going on with like right here? By the way, I hate the battlefield sequences, but I care about the character of Cliff. And so it all uh, comes together at the end. And it's genuinely heartbreaking when you finally when they finally run it all back and you get to see Cliff's entire story. Yeah, like this story doesn't really work without Cliff um, or Mm. like at least Mads Mikkelsen kind of like saved the game for me in the sense that Eric said the ending was the saving grace. Like I agree. And the saving grace of the ending is Cliff, like Mads Mikkelsen. Like that ending isn't sold uh, like nearly as well without his performance. Um, And you generally feel like, you know, like kind of a bit of heartbreak at the end when what happens happens. to avoid the spoilers what do you think they're trying to say with cliff exactly because i've been thinking about this a lot and it always kind of struck me as cliff represents the more predatory aspect of america because a lot of death stranding is kind of deconstructing the united states i want to say like hideo kojima has a kind of a fascination with the united states he's said it in the past I was reading up a lot on his like older interviews for a story that I'm working on. Uh, Hideo Kojima talks about how his father was, you know, experienced the war. And his father was there when America was bombing uh, Japan and everything. And that left his father with kind of a lasting hate of America. But then eventually his father came around. And so he's described it as a tightrope that he's always walking where there are aspects of America that he hates. And there's aspects of America that he really likes. And you can, like, I want to say, see that in Death Stranding. So you have Bridget Strand, who kind of represents the, I want to say, more optimistic ideas of America. But at the same time, she's willing to sell out those ideas for expediency and is even like willing to say as much. And then you have Cliff, who is a soldier who is basically being screwed over by the America at every single turn, right? He's the vengeful vengeful spirit of all of the people, especially all the soldiers who ultimately did a service of some kind for the United States and then got just kind of left on the scrap heap. When you look at it as like, I've heard a lot of people draw comparisons to climate change and the Death Stranding, like the idea that the Death Stranding was brought about by a previous generation that did not care about whether it was ruining pieces of the earth, whether it was doing harmful things to the earth in order for the advancement of society. And uh, Sam and, and the other characters that you meet throughout Death Stranding are kind of the next generation that are trying to piece things together after the irreparable damage has already been done. And in in that way, like it is, I see cliff as kind of the bridge there as someone who as a soldier was also like taken advantage of uh, in the story. We see that his, I don't know if I want to call it naivete, but like the idea that he's still optimistic about the way things can go. And then he gradually very quickly learns <laughs> over the course of all those flashbacks and stuff like that. Uh, you see him figure out that things are going poorly, that uh, 
that things are not going to turn out well for his family. They're going to get used like he was. And uh, he makes a call and ends up becoming through a bunch of events that we don't have time to recap <laughs> a vengeful spirit uh, that, that wants to get back at that generation. So I, it, it's a, I'm not going to sit here and say it's like, it's, it's not Ulysses, you know, we're not like going to be, piecing this apart for ages it's not exactly subtle or anything but i think death stranding is at least interesting in the way that it kind of ties all its themes together like it at some point i feel like either there is one cohesive knot that is that just pins it all together that brings all these themes i know right (laughs) either there is one there or at least there is the illusion of one there oh yeah i totally agree and I don't know, like, yeah, it totally wears all of its uh, themes on its sleeve, but there's a thing on TV Tropes where it says some anvils need to be dropped, and sometimes it's okay for a work to be unsubtle as long as it has something interesting to say, and it does it in a way that's, uh, I, I want to say, uh, clever. Um, once again, like, Kideo Kojima works in a lot of his themes uh, through gameplay, I, I would say especially through the, the stranding gameplay, as it were. <laughs> Um, the multiplayer where you're uh, working with other people to build up highways and bridges and all that and you see likes Um, I kind of wanted to like go and ask Hideo Kojima if he's okay because he talks a lot about being really lonely like a very lonely person and uh, he said Death Stranding is about kind of dealing with loneliness to some extent and maybe seeing a like is a reminder that there are other people out there and that you're not just completely alone in this world. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think, like, I don't really think this is anything new to Kojima's work. Like, hearing you say that he's actually very lonely, like, didn't really surprise me at all. Um, Because yesterday I was reading a piece on um, Metal Gear Solid Five. And about how that deals with themes of like kind of emptiness and regret and revenge and what we do with those feelings, um, and bringing that I feel as though that's very like prevalent in Death Stranding as well. Um, honestly, I like that feeling of emptiness and not really knowing where to go or what to do. Um, so I like yeah, I agree, but I, d- I don't really think that's anything like new to his work. Mm. Uh, that feeling of like loneliness. Yeah, he goes all the way back to um, Metal Gear Solid 3, at least, because he said in an interview with, I think it was Edge in, like, 2004, that when he goes into a hotel room, he always turns on a TV because he just, like, can't stand the idea of being alone in a hotel room. So, yeah, this is definitely not anything particularly new. Uh, so we we've mentioned more than once that we think the ending saves the game why did why do we think the game needed saving like what was it about death stranding that wasn't working with it for us until the finale so i feel like like you're going back again to metal gear solid 5 i feel as though the criticisms of death stranding were also very like were also there for metal gear solid 5 like the pacing of this game is not good like it's really really bad um, like Metal Gear Solid Five had like a ten-hour story that was stretched over stretched over like sixty hours. I feel as though you could say the same about Death Stranding. Um, like they do pack in a lot of plot to like very specific moments in the story. Um, so like, and it also depends on what you're doing in the game, right? Like if you're undertaking side orders, you can go for like ten hours without the story advancing. Um, 
so the ending kind of brings it all back around in one like kind of fell swoop to kind of like remind you what you've actually been struggling towards the whole time but yeah it is like the pacing of this game is very off and needed like a jump start that that ending gave it i i i don't know that i'd fully agree that it's like the story pacing necessarily because i didn't mind that there was gaps in the story where it was very clear like hey you can go do side stuff and you won't feel like you're uh shirking your immediate critical decisions that need to be made uh you know there's there are a lot of points in this game where they keep reminding Sam, like, oh, time to go westward, but hey, you know, maybe you go do some package deliveries and stuff like that. You know, do what you want, Sam. This, you know, your sister's being held hostage, but it it doesn't matter. <laughs> you take your own pace there. Uh, and I like a lot of just the walking in this game. I like the exploring. I like just the atmosphere of this game. I, I think it's really interesting that some people, like, get down on the fact that this, like, oh, this world is just, like, mountains and stuff like that but that's that's fine i don't need everything to be these like massive cities and skyscrapers and this game does have massive cities and not quite skyscrapers but you do actually see civilization you just that's not where sam is headed sam doesn't want to be near civilization sam wants to be on the wilderness and i enjoy it for that but i think the the greater sin of the pacing is the way that at multiple times the game forces you to backtrack Uh, over ground you've already tread so even if you've planned out this super effective route where you're going to hit all these prepper stashes in order and you'll have one smooth line from distro center to distro center and all that uh, as you journey westward to connect the united cities of america you still hit points in the story where it's like hey Uh, this person's mad and they're so mad they won't even call on the cell phone so sam you gotta walk back and you're just kind of like what and the game's like yep (laughs) and then you get there and the game's like hey guess what uh story things happened uh again for things that would take me way too long to recap here (laughs) and you gotta go drive back uh because this person just as i don't know fragile's feeling lazy right now does not want to jump this person (laughs) there i don't know like it's but that was supposed to be the final run that was the thing, was that True. you're going through the gauntlet. Oh, no, I'm not even talking... Okay, see, now me being unspecific is being unhelpful. I'm not even talking about that part with Fragile at the end where you can't jump back to the east. I'm talking about the stuff with Mama where you have to go around the mountains to talk to Lochna, and then the game says, okay, now you got to talk to Mama again. And then Mama's like, hey, how about you carry me back to Lochna? And then it's like, hey, Higgs is here and he's got a dog now. And that dog doesn't like mailman. Wait, did Kojima make a mailman and dog joke? And I only just now got it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they just kind of throw that at you where you're running back and forth. And I remember sending a DM to a a reviewer friend of mine who's covering this for another site. I was like, "Are, are they serious with this right now? Uh, and they were like, yep, uh, I don't know, get a motorcycle. Like, that's the best piece of advice I can give you. So, yes, a lot drive. Of this, motorcycles yeah. are the best. Uh, motorcycles are the second best. Let me tell you about the wonders of the zip line, which is the uh, best building in Death Stranding. Oh, the saving grace of the mountains. Oh, my Lord. That, that zip line network that went up throughout the review period was just... That was the true Death Stranding, was us coming together to say, <laughs> these mountains suck. <laughs> the Death Stranding was a zipline all along. No, I 
Well, I think my least favorite chapter by far is the one where uh, BB goes into repairs or whatever. And yeah, okay, I get it. You're showing what it's like without BB. And your absent make, absence makes the heart grow fonder, as it were, because you have to, on multiple occasions, deal with BTs without BB there. And BB is good there because, you know, BB helps you see the BTs. And if BB gets scared with the BTs, and so we'll go and eventually we'll uh, go into kind of a shock if you deal with too many BTs. So and then you won't have access to any of BT, BB's abilities. And most of the time you can kind of manage that those aspects without too much trouble. But then at a certain point, they take BB away from you. And it's literally just passing time. You're just going back and forth doing missions like, I don't even remember what happens in that segment, except Deadman periodically pops up and goes, all right, well, we're almost there. Uh, the, I'm running some tests right now. Go do another mission. And I'm like, no, F you. I'm not doing another mission. Just give me my BB back and advance the story. God damn it. Well, that, that whole segment ends up having some really interesting lore going on in the background because the whole time you're doing it, there's this side plot with this i think it's a mountaineer who's up in the mountains who his wife is going into labor but he can't handle that he needs a doctor but obviously all these preppers are deep underground they don't want to risk traveling from one uh hideout to the other they might run into a bt or something like that so you have to run and grab this whole setup that'll let another doctor who's in another shelter like chiral teleport into this dude's shelter to be a doctor and help the wife there and there's all this interesting stuff going on where you're seeing like okay this is what society is like you didn't have to think about this before because there's this idea of oh right you know people might need doctors but they're all holed away up underground so how do you handle that how do they take care of that is how is the chiral network making that possible for them to be able to get the help they need rather than just like dying in a shelter but all of that then kind of gets undercut by, like you said, Guillermo del Toro, not Guillermo del Toro, um, popping up and, and being like, oh, by the way, uh, reminder, you don't have a BB right now. I know that's super annoying. I'm just reminding you of that fact, if you didn't already know that. And you got to do more missions. Uh, yeah, bye. And then pops away again. And it, in times like that, there are times in this game where you, you are kind of doing those odds and ends. I think of the Hartman missions where you're helping out all the scientists that are in Hartman's area and you're learning about what the Death Stranding was and, you know, you're diving into history and learning about extinction events and how this has all happened before and it'll all happen again. And there's like great moments there where they find good ways of threading all those missions together. But yeah, this that one specific part is just brutal for that aspect. Yeah, it's a great example of a point that could have been made in maybe a mission or two, and instead was belabored over and over and over again. <laughs> and it's just a shows that Death Stranding is a game that kind of overstays its welcome to a great extent. Uh, I think that it could have been 10 hours shorter and like not lost a lot because there are times where i was completely captivated by death stranding uh people talk about the beginning being slow but actually i really enjoyed the beginning because it lays out so many compelling mysteries the it's really atmospheric it's really interesting you're learning these mechanic these new mechanics pretty much every time you go on on a mission and so you're going okay like i'm in i i'm willing to go along with death stranding on this ride 
And every time something would actually, there would actually be a real story development, like, I don't know, uh, Higgs would show up, for example, um, or I am learning more about what is actually, what actually happened with the Death Stranding uh, and whatnot. Like, I was always like, I'm in, like, I'm curious to know what's going on. But every time I was doing what was effectively busy work, I was like, I just am trying to get through this to get to the next interesting bit. Yeah, see, this is what I meant, where it could be like, it could be like half the length, like Death Stranding could, and and like, the plot would not be affected at all, it would still be told in the same way. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, it's really frustrating, it feels like these are the exact same criticisms we had like four years ago or whatever from like Metal Gear Solid V. But in terms of like size wise, would you want it to be smaller than it is? Because I feel like this world this world needs to be really large for what they want to do with things that are in the post game, like this idea of going back and building up America, building all these highways and stuff. Like would you want the world to be yeah, smaller as well? I think the world could be equally sized. I think the matter is just I think the matter is just doing the missions over and over again. Like there is some, I, I would say that you make one too many runs to uh, Lake Knot City, right? <laughs> Between Lake Knot City and wherever, right? Before you finally, finally go down to South Knot City. And yeah, I get it. You're establishing a sense of place and everything. And you're kind of driving home a lot of the, the themes. But again, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, get on it with it. Seriously. <laughs> There's such a thing as economy of storytelling, Hideo Kojima. But, uh, all right. So we belabored that point enough. Um, so, okay, moving on to the end then, what was it about the ending that was so good? We already talked about how it resolves a cliff story. I will say that cutscene is very long. <laughs> oh, it's so long. I was like going, kind of going, okay, I already knew like, all of this stuff like you see all of it in flashbacks so yeah i get it it's earned okay fine like that's why i was willing to go along with it not the least because cliff is great so i was like i'm with cliff i want to see what happened with cliff all of that um i will say some of its twists were definitely telegraphed like i was like hmm i wonder if sam I, i wonder if sam was uh uh the the baby in the jar like, I was kind of suspecting that Sam was uh, the BB. No, he's not the BB. He was a BB. But you see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> or they were just spoiled in, like, the launch trailer, which, for some reason... Was it? I mean, yeah, a lot of that is, like, you see uh, Cliff, like, running throughout the corridor with a pistol and BB, and it's like, oh, great, I guess he's trying to escape in that launch trailer. Oh, are you talking about the one, yeah, the one that they put out that was, like, the yeah, eight-minute yeah. Kojima trailer? There's- yeah, that was... Bad. I don't think the sand twist was necessarily spoiled in that, but there were no, it wasn't a, spoiled. There were a lot of things in that trailer, like oh, you know, maybe Amelie's an extinction entity. <laughs> no, actually, I think they put the line in there where she says, "I'm an extinction entity," which I was like, okay, that's something to put in the trailer, I guess. And then they show <laughs> all the stuff with like Higgs and Amelie and. Like, the, the Higgs boss fight, which is, by the way, one of my favorite parts of the game, like, bar none. That that boss fight was incredible in a Kojima way, because initially I was like, oh, you know, that was pretty good. And then I went on the Slack to talk to y'all, and I was like, oh, how'd you beat it? And y'all had wildly different ways of fighting him than I did. And I was like, oh, okay, there's, like, a lot more depth to this fight than I thought. Because I was throwing cargo at his head, but y'all were like... <laughs> 
y'all were doing like stealth and things like that and i think someone else was saying that they just like punched him but uh i was like okay this it reminded me a lot of the the really good metal gear solid one-on-one fights where you just kind of had someone that you had to fight and you had a lot of tools at your disposal and the game said you know like figure it out get it done and it was so awesome to take a piece of cargo and just smash him across the face really hard. <laughs> That's, so it's good. incredibly satisfying because for most of the game, you are terrified of like hurting your cargo because you're able to do that for most of the game. You can throw any piece of cargo you want. And the game actually makes like clever use of that mechanic at some points, like when you're throwing the nuke into the lake or when you have like smoke emitting cargo that you can chuck over to distract mules but you never want to throw that like precious cargo, you know, your whether it's a quest item or it's, you know, maybe it's something you actually care about like, you know, a ladder or something like that. You never actually want to throw that away. You'd rather just reload a save than get rid of those resources. So the fact that they just went, "Okay, just chuck cargo at Troy Baker's head." Like that's mm. What did you, how did you finish the uh the Higgs fight here in? Like were you just going out and oh, what were you doing to him? So I kind of broke the fight a little bit because um, I Good baited job. him. <laughs> yeah, sorry. In true Metal Gear um, tradition. So I was at first I was running up to him, just punching him in the face, and I was like, okay, this clearly doesn't get me anywhere. So I'd bait him into the grenade animation, and if you run at him when he starts the grenade animation, he can't stop it. So if you got behind him and with the strand equipped and you quickly double tap both triggers, it'll instantly tie him up even if he's like halfway through the grenade animation. Um, so you do that, you kick him on the ground like four times, I think, and you do that like really quickly, just twice, and like the fight's over. Um, and I'll be honest, I kind of didn't like that fight. <laughs> it kind of felt very underwhelming to have, be like just punching this guy in the face that has like godlike powers. No, no, no. You get into like this Tekken, like you want to hear someone in the background go like, fight. And like, you just, <laughs> like that part was so like, yeah, I, I beat the shit out of Troy Baker in that part, but it was also, it felt really good because even pop up the health bars. I mean, I feel like that was almost a callback to Metal Gear Solid 4, like the, the ending of Metal Gear Solid 4 where you fist fight uh, Liquid on top of the whatever it was um it was like a submarine or something wasn't it? I, I can't remember the ending of four that's all that not well, a good callback fever dream but <laughs> <laughs> there are so many metal gear callbacks in this game though like there's so many moments like either subtle or very very painstakingly obvious <laughs> on like, the notes yeah like when you get the drones and they pop up and you're like oh that's the robot leg thing from metal gear rising uh and i think they were also in four but like oh it's those things again and it's just delivering packages now like is death stranding in the metal gear solid universe i want to see the youtuber that makes the 60 minute i think it's effective because in previous mass effect or sorry in previous metal gear solid games uh you were playing as a super soldier right and in this game you're a delivery guy you're a male you're a mailman and this fight really drives home just how you're trying to survive by any means by, you know, there's a dude with a big old machine gun and you don't have anything except your cargo and your wits, right? And yeah, if you can get it close enough, uh, yeah, you can just punch them. But there's something really primal about doing that, right? They 
in figuring out how to use the strand and figuring out how to slash slam his face with the, the actual cargo. And then when he pulls out the knife and then it just, it becomes like an actual knife fight and you're having to use the parry mechanics and everything. It reminds me of all of the best like CQC moments in Metal Gear Solid three, uh, uh, generally slimmed down, uh, especially compared to Metal Gear Solid. Um, I think there are going to be some inevitable comparisons, like we made some of them with the stealth and everything. It's certainly not as deep as anything that you would find in Metal Gear Solid in that regard, but that's okay because Sam is a different character from Solid Snake. And so... Yeah, but then he... But then he turns into a super soldier when he goes on the battlefields. I mean, No, he doesn't. He, yeah, he's he does. A, he's, he's dumb on the battle... Okay. Tell me, those battlefield bits were so bad... <laughs> Yeah, so bad because he Sam just guns, he guns down like 20 people. Right, but he's got like blood bags keeping him alive and he's eating all those crypto biotes. Like, here's here's the thing about all those battlefield scenes is I looked like, if you were watching me from a distance, like just watching me play through all those, I would have looked stupid because I was just some dude bumbling around with literally 5,000 rifles and blood bags on my back. Like this giant... Uh, cargo carrier running through never taking cover just trying to like i didn't feel until the last battlefield there was any sense of strategy or tactics or even thought being put into it i was just like okay i'm going to stock up on blood bags and assault rifles and i'm going to outlast these enemies in a war of attrition because that is the only way that my character is able to handle this right now because i don't have I can't take cover. I can't do like flanking maneuvers. I don't have a roadie run or anything like that. You know, this isn't Gears of War. I'm playing what is essentially a delivery game and they just put a gun in my hands. And I I felt like that was definitely annoying to play, but in the same sense I also get maybe what they unintentionally got at, which was like Sam is a moron who has never shot a gun in his life before. And now he's having to run around and try and kill like special agents and all that stuff, um, like special forces. Yeah. But it's really jarring because first of all, the mechanics aren't very good. Uh, It's really obnoxious trying to aim with that thing. The cargo containers blocking your view uh, you're having a hard time figuring out where they're coming from. I had to redo those segments so many times. You don't have any real uh, traditional cover mechanics, so it actually feels really outdated in that regard. And also, it's really at odds with the rest of the game because so much of Death Stranding is being stealthy, uh, not using non-lethal methods to take down enemies and get out of tough situations, uh, being clever with the way you're using the cargo and all of that stuff. And so now it's just like, well, nope, straight up shoot, uh, straight up shoot the guys. And then you have to do it like three times. Like there are three different versions of this. And like, granted, they look cool in kind of a Call of Duty way. It almost feels like he's taking aim at those military shooters, as it were. But uh, uh, (laughs) it's not fun, you know? God, they were so jarring and arbitrary. Like it, I felt like this game would be so much better if it didn't have those bits. I don't know. Like thematically they work, but it makes me go back to, uh, there's a bit in Metal Gear Solid 3 where I guess you could say that you're walking down a river of death, um, and you're seeing everybody that you killed. And there's no action segments to it. It's 
basically a non-interactive segment. You're just walking. And like that really works. And you wonder if there could be a segment in this where you're not necessarily having to kill ghost soldiers that you're just seeing like this ghost is haunting you and you're wondering what the heck is going on. Like you don't have to actually get into gunfights. It reminded me, weirdly enough, of a game I really didn't like called Call of Duty Black Ops 3, where (laughs) in the campaign, you have this moment where you go into someone's mind, and all of a sudden, you're transported to World War II, and it's literally like old Call of Duty again, and then all of a sudden, it's doing the zombies mode, and at first, it's like really... I, I was like, oh, this is really striking. This is really cool. And then once you get about five minutes into it, like once it is overstayed that initial, like, oh, this is neat. And you realize like, oh, we're doing this. Like, this is what we're doing now. Uh, then it suddenly becomes a chore. And so like, I, you can almost pinpoint the moment to where they probably should have stopped with it, which was the second Cliff actually like wakes up and gets out of his spider web, which is a great scene, by the way. But then you start like, okay, now I got to kill all his soldiers then i kill him then he like dashes away and i go to the next one and it's that stuff just needed to be cut down like crazy because it just was not effective it it was the point where i was most aware that i was playing a video game that someone had designed like it's, it's like playing zelda and realizing like oh yeah i need to do this thing to a boss three times and i'll beat it like that when you become aware of that then you've lost any sense of wonder that is happening in that moment so getting back to the ending really quickly um the whole bits with amelie and everything so <laughs> so you give her a hug to stop the end of the world just give her a hug and she's like oh oh i just need a hug it's okay did did anyone try shooting her i did yep i unloaded everybody immediately tries shooting her yeah just wondering (laughs) because that's the one thing i didn't like about the ending is i got to it and i was just sitting there i was like like they're setting up that big decision of like oh are you going to shoot her or are you going to watch the end of the world with her and i was like well, yeah, I'm a shooter because I don't know who Amelie is. You spend that whole game being told how important Amelie is to Sam, but I don't feel like it ever makes good on proving that. You get some of the flashbacks with Sam when he's younger on the beach with Amelie and all that, but it, it just came off as this weird Oedipal thing and not like any sort of actual connection between characters. And also it made me realize that Sam you think he would have figured out by the fact that Amelie has always stayed the same age, but Sam has gotten older that maybe something's up with Amelie, but well, he, she know. had cancer. Well, no, Bridget had cancer. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying <laughs> is you think he would have put a little bit of two and two together, but uh, yeah. Also, I'm now suddenly realizing that the mask thing with Bridget and Amelie was almost like a Count of Monte Cristo situation, like a man, not Count of Monte Cristo, a man in the iron mask situation. And like, oh boy, Kojima, what are you doing? But uh, I just did not care about Amelie until the very end of the game. And then they do that whole scene at, you know, the end of time and all that. And I was like, okay, you know, that was kind of neat. And then you have that really long sequence where you're just living through Amelie's life and I'm going like why didn't you give me this 
before I had to make some sort of emotional decision about whether or not I was going to destroy her. <laughs> yeah, we needed, like, more scenes between Sam and Amelie, just, like, them being them. Because, like, I never felt like Amelie was an actual character, which I guess has actually come at the point because she is an entity. But it still doesn't reinforce, like, it doesn't reinforce the fact that she's an actual living, like, breathing person. And that we should care for the decision, like, that we're making towards her. You get told that you should care about her, and I feel yeah, like that's... Yeah, never actually feel like... Yeah, it's not as effective as characters like, you know, like Dead Man, who I feel like really earns that spot that he has on the cast over time, or like... Uh, or Fragile. Yeah, or Fragile, yeah. Oh, God. Fragile has one of... For once, like, she has one of the worst scenes in the game like Mm -hmm. you know done to her but then also she has one of the best scenes in the game and it's like this the classic kojima dichotomy of can he figure out how to like empower a female character without also like just completely dressing her down in the process and it yeah (laughs) but fragile does get one great moment in this game and i loved it it was that was one of my favorite parts of the game It it felt like he was running back the whole quiet thing but maybe actually getting it right this time mostly like 75 percent right oh he comes so close because that scene where she's having to walk into the time fall is really effective except for the bit where the camera is just it's like why why do we have to linger on her and her underwear like with the butt shots and everything yeah it's like they were in the pitch meeting and they're going like kojima's like okay so she's gonna have to run in the time fall because higgs caught her out good good all right and then higgs is going to give her an ultimatum she can jump away and be selfish or she can save everyone and be hurt by the time fall all right good and she's going to run through the rain in this great moment all right good and then we're going to zoom in on her butt wait what (laughs) (laughs) because like they give her agency right like, she is making so many of these decisions, and then she's expressing, like, regret over these decisions. And it's great. It all works. It's just, except for that bit. And then at the end, like, she she's the one who, you know, gets to take out Higgs. She she gets that moment. Oh, or does she? Or No, she totally does. Like, you hear a gunshot. Hmm, but yeah. who pulled the trigger? Yeah, mm. it was Higgs. right that's that's the part i actually kind of like so like the two things i love about fragile especially by the end are a straight up very early on she she is telling sam like i'm not working with you because i'm in love with you or anything dumb like that uh which was also kind of the issue i had with quiet which is like oh quiet was supposed to be this double agent but then she fell for the diamond dogs and and couldn't bring herself to do it like that's that's dumb that's bad writing i'm sorry but uh fragile is like no i want to mess over higgs you seem like someone who can get that done so you and i are going to work together and then the friendship grows a lot more naturally over that period of time because of it. And then at the end, when she reveals at like the very end of the game that she didn't actually pull the trigger on Higgs, that she basically gave him the option and said, you can live here in this beach, never dying, or you can pull the trigger. It's your choice. And I like that a lot because she's basically saying, like, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of being killed by me if you're going to die. If you're going to, like, own up for all the terrible things you've done, you've got to do it to yourself. But either way, I'm punishing you. Like, that's that's a boss move. That's real good. And just to have that one scene, that one time fall scene, just be the one little bad point in all this is what hurts the most. 
Would you say that it was a big boss scene? Oh, yes, it was a big boss scene. She, there you go. She channeled the big boss right there. Well, technically the boss, because... And leave it to Kojima to make quick, fast travel just have this really awesome flourish, while also not making it trivial. Like, you had to drop all of your stuff in a locker, and so it wasn't convenient exactly, but it worked. Yeah, I mean, at, at some point it does kind of become a little trivial because you hit a point in that game where the resources are so abundant and also you need less and less of them as you get further in that game because, like, by the end, you know, I had maybe a ladder and two PCCs on me and that was about all I needed for equipment. Everything else could go in grenade pouches. It could get attached to my suit. I had the power skeleton to get me over terrain so I wasn't worried as much about ropes i mean i did some real skyrim stuff in that game that some of it felt like i was doing what was very much unintended and then other times it did punish me for trying to literally scale like straight up and down surfaces <laughs> by just jumping repeatedly uh which it did punish me for once and i was like okay fair but uh i i felt like the fast travel i didn't even use it that often just because I wanted to explore the world. I wanted to be in it. I always found like a way to be like, okay, if I'm going to go back this way, I might as well pick up an order and do it on the way back there. Like, I feel like the game did a good job of encouraging that. Yeah, for sure. And plus Lisa Doe is like a bloody great actor. And I, <laughs> I mean, like we talk about, you know, Mads Mikkelsen, like being the point in which Kojima finally found a good use for his like Hollywood fascination. Like I argue she is as well. Um, like, she goes a long way to selling this game as well, and honestly, I wish she was in more things. So, if Death Stranding is, also, is partly a deconstruction of America, it's also maybe a bit about how we face up to the possibility of extinction. <laughs> I uh, So, we, like, briefly mentioned the, the climate change themes, right? And people are like, oh, like I, I mentioned briefly, it was like, oh, it's about how we face up to extinction. People are like, well, I mean, that's like every game, right? And I'm like, um, I don't know. I think it's a little more specific this time around, just because they talk about, uh, what was it? The big five, the big five extinctions, including the dinosaurs and everything. And it's basically hinting very broadly that Kojima seems to think that we're well on our way to the sixth extinction in real life. And honestly, I don't want to get too dark on this podcast, but I'm not wholly, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not wholly disagreeing with him. And what did you think the message about the message at the end, where it's basically kind of a hopeful take life day by day, like you can't change the fact that maybe very dark times are coming, but you can keep, uh, what was it, fight fight against the dying of the light. <laughs> As Kojima said, I'll keep coming. And that's what his message is for all of us, <laughs> truly. Uh, no, I, I, I liked it a lot. <laughs> like, I wasn't going to bring that quote up. Come on. I'm a teenager. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, I liked it a lot. And uh, Kat, you drew the comparison immediately to, like, Evangelion. Like, the, that's very much, it's like, he's he's doing second impact. He's doing human instrumentality. Like, he's definitely pulling a lot of those cards and i think in the same way he's looking at you know like what is what does humanity do next especially when it seems so driven to its own destruction and like are we going to force I, there's there's a lot of good bits about how 
uh, species in the past have avoided a stranding by evolving into new species. And so the idea that an extinction event isn't necessarily the death of the human race, but potentially the evolution. Like we are killing what makes us us right now to become something better. And I think there's like little little twines of hope like scattered throughout that that give you that sense that by the end it all wraps up into the the scene with sam's bb and him like making the decision to basically leave the uca that he's not going to be a part of the uca because he wants to evolve past that i feel like by the end sam realizes that the uca is a good thing but it may maybe also represents like a a a feeling of the past. It, it feels kind of bittersweet at the end because they very purposefully don't let you pick up right from that point to do all the open world stuff. They jump you back in time because I think wherever Sam goes next, should there be a death stranding too or anything like that, uh, it, it can involve the UCA. It might involve the destruction of the UCA because that represents thinking in the o- old world ways. And like they, they make the very clear point that, that's going to eventually lead to ruin at some point. They need to do something better. And so I, I felt it. Yeah. It felt like bittersweet, hopeful at the end, but I liked it a lot. There were a lot of nice little touches that I came out of it feeling more positive about humanity than I have in some time. So that's maybe the, well, I think it's telling that Sam leaves after the UCA is reconstructed as it were. And they're like, yay, UCA is reconstructed. Everybody's connected to the chiral network. We're fine. He's like, bye. <laughs> And perhaps it is saying a little bit like, yeah, maybe just rebuilding the infrastructure isn't quite enough. (laughs) So final thoughts. Death Stranding, is it a success ultimately? I mean, I gave it a 3.5 out of 5. I more or less stand with that score because there's a lot going on in this game that I think is really good. And yet at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. I'll be thinking about this game for a while. I may even put it in my top 10 ultimately. But there's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd go back and play it. Yeah, I'd call it thought provoking, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a good game, right? Mm. Like, but does it have fascin- to be a good game? Like, it gets into that whole thing of uh, interactive experiences versus just being kind of a frivolous entertainment experience, right? Right, but I mean, yeah, I don't really have a good answer for that, but also. Like, as someone who's beaten this game twice now, I think it's fair to say, like, that I've seen, like, all the flaws this game has to offer and all the pacing problems and all of Kojima's god-awful writing at times. Um, And, like, that doesn't make for a good interactive experience. Um, So, like, yeah, I, I think I admire this game for a lot it tries to accomplish. Whether it always accomplishes that successfully, I'm not sure about. But I, I just know that I haven't really stopped thinking about this game since I finished playing it. Eric? Yeah, it's it's interesting because like I I really hate I, I like loathe the idea of pretending like this is some high minded like only the intelligent will understand Death Stranding. It's it's not. It's really not. That's not the case at all. But there are flaws with it, and and it also has to be judged on the merits of a video game, which means that it's not only trying to uh match up to expectations of story and narrative and some deeper level of thinking but it's also trying to match up to the entertainment that you might get from tetris you know it's it's like is this game entertaining to play maybe in in parts 
in parts yes and in parts no is it cohesive not always is it really achieving all that it sets out to do no but it like tries really really hard and there's something about that effort that struggle to make it all work and like the idea that kojima has been working towards this stuff for so long that this game also represents just continuity and everything that he has been developing from metal gear to they're like horror aspects of this we haven't really touched on like the, the bts and stuff like that you can feel some pt influence in that and you can see all these different things coming together it's like this is a game that might not be the best video game but it's the one i'll be thinking about five years from now more than most of the other games i've played this year even ones i might put higher on my game of the year list so it's i i think that alone is like testament enough to that if you want a game that's going to give that to you then it's something that i would recommend it's something that you're going to be thinking about for a long time even if it's not the most relaxing thing to put on on a tuesday after work it's a challenging work in more ways than one. I, I don't know. Like when I look at Death Stranding, people are, there is a certain segment of the, I don't know, the journalism pool and also uh, fans who are treating this as a seminal work on par with something that you would see from, I don't know, <laughs> Lars von Trier or somebody, right? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I think in a year, people are going to look back and Death Stranding and go, that sure was a game, wasn't it? <laughs> That game was Kojima being Kojima, I I gotta say. Is it a seminal game that's going to completely change gaming? I don't really think so. I think that ultimately, I'm glad it exists, mostly because it's a throwback to a different period of blockbuster game development where auteurs had more freedom to develop big-budget oddities, experimental games, that kind of thing, when a game failing wasn't quite as catastrophic. Um, Of all of the people still in the industry, maybe Kojima is one of the handful that has the longest amount of rope to kind of fail, and he's using that rope to make interesting experiences, and I say good for him. There's so much formulaic crap out there that to see a game about like Death Stranding that legitimately gets us talking is exciting. But as for whether it's successful, uh, uh, I don't know. Ask me in 10 (laughs) years. Yeah, I don't think Kojima has the pull with like the average consumer that he has with us, um, like the people that are really into games. And I think like it took me kind of three years of playing Metal Gear Solid Five to get my thoughts together on that game. And I reckon it will probably take me somewhere similar with Death Stranding. I... I, I real quick just want to respond to that. The like doesn't have the same pull. Uh, I've been routinely surprised by people who like friends of mine who don't play video games who are like, hey, what's up with this Death Stranding? Like, what's going on there? That's they, because it's been marketed really heavily. It's been marketed. It's got that Norman Reedus in there, and he's got a fetus. Only because they saw that advert with the fetus on the TV, not because of Kojima, right? And it's yeah. and it's filtering into the mass culture because mainstream sites are writing about it too and talking about how right, like yes. crazy and insane and like ambitious it is. Yeah, I, I still I'm think gra- that honestly, could, I'm grateful we have something like that. I still think it could drive like I I I see this as maybe I feel like MGS five by that point 
you know, maybe the first Metal Gear Solid, the second Metal Gear Solid was definitely still like that spy action thriller. But by MGS4, MGS5, the narrative was like, oh, what crazy stuff. And you have to know all this lore. And whereas Death Stranding, you get to start with a clean slate. You have all these stars on board. It's There's a lot of like cutscenes. You get to watch a movie essentially while you play the game. And I feel, and then you have to walk across mountains like five times. <laughs> but I, but I see people. I see it as almost like we have played a lot of games, and so maybe we have less patience for this. You know, somebody who maybe hasn't played dozens of open world games already this year, who hasn't just spent a lot of this year holding a controller, maybe would start to go like, oh wow, it's really interesting that they did this. This is really neat. Like I could a hundred percent see that happening. And I'm not saying it will, but again, we talked about how Kojima has the rope to kind of make this weird experience that might break out in that way. Why not? You know, I think this could be the one. All right, folks, thanks for listening to our spoiler roundtable about Death Stranding. Like, we had a lot to say. Maybe you have some thoughts on Death Stranding now that you're getting a chance to play it. I'm sure there will be people who play this game to its conclusion over the weekend. And to you people, you are crazy. And honestly, you should be playing this game on and off over the course of like a month so that you don't go crazy. Because I think the review crunch doesn't really this ga- do this game a huge service but take your time take your time enjoy it and also go read all of our coverage of death stranding because we've got a fair amount going up on the site we did a review round table Huron's been doing a ton of guides i'm planning on writing a huge thing that contextualizes death stranding and hideo kojima's career uh we've got a death stranding explained guide that should be up at the same time as this podcast there's a lot yeah, so if you're, like, really into uh, Death Stranding, you will find no shortage of content on US Gamer. And go read my review, too, because I wrote, like, 2,500 words on this game. So, okay, folks. Acts of Blood God, US Gamer Podcast. Uh, subscribe to us. Leave reviews. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Hiran is at Hiran Cryer. That's H-I-R-U-N-C-R-Y-E-R. And Perfect. Yeah, I did it. And Eric <laughs> is at... Simusi, S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I. We will be back next week for more podcast action talking about RPGs again. Uh, yeah, uh, Nadia is reviewing Pokemon at the moment, and the embargo should be up by the time the next podcast comes out. So we will be having a big old Pokemon discussion. We'll probably have Callie from GameSpot back uh, to have a proper discussion about it as well. And man, we're heading right into the Black Friday end of year period. So it won't be long before we're talking about the best RPGs of the year. But until then, for thanks to Hiran for coming on the show. Thanks to Eric for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, and until next time, I've been Cap Bailey. Happy adventuring. <laughs>